19 of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19. We're studying through the Gospel of Luke, chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 19. We're going to read the end of chapter 19 and the first eight verses of chapter 20. Luke 19, beginning in verse 45. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And they were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now it happened on one of those days. As he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests, the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing. Answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. Lord, to say that it's a privilege to have your word and to be able to read it and study it is such an understatement. We do thank you with hearts full of gratefulness and and joy, Lord, that we can uh, read these words, understand them, have them applied to our life and walk out of this place, Lord, filled with the joy of the Lord. And I pray that we would carefully attend to each word, that we would allow your Holy Spirit who is in this place to bring these words into our lives. To make us more like Jesus than we were before we came in. So that we could affect a world that is in sore need of spiritual help. Bless us for having been here, Lord. We know that you want to. And I pray that our expectation would be met above and beyond anything that we could have thought. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Instead of praying for God's people, they were praying on God's people. The temple in Jesus' time consisted of numerous courtyards that were open to different groups of people for the purpose of sightseeing, socializing, but most important, connecting with spiritual truth. Anyone who was not a Jew was considered and called a Gentile. Gentiles were only allowed to visit an outer courtyard of the temple. The events of our story take place in this outer court of the Gentiles. When Jesus said, my house is a house of prayer, he was quoting a verse from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. That verse reads in full like this. It's Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The reference to all nations means Gentiles. 
God intended all the peoples of the world to come to his temple to learn spiritual truth. The court of the Gentiles should have been dedicated to evangelizing visitors. Instead, it was full of tables and booths. The tables were where money changers sat. Jewish men were required by the Old Testament law to come to the temple annually and pay a temple tax. When you got to the temple, you found out that your currency needed to be exchanged for the proper currency. It's not unlike those of you who travel and you have to exchange your dollars for whatever the local currency is. Money changers were on hand in the court of the Gentiles. They were allowed to charge you exorbitant, outrageous fees to change your money. There was nothing you could do because you had to exchange your money. The booths were where you could purchase animals to present for your sacrifices. Instead of finding and then transporting an acceptable lamb or dove a great distance as you journeyed to the temple, you could buy one once you arrived. These temple animals were pre-certified by the temple authorities to be sacrifice ready. They're kind of like pre-certified used cars. You'd go up and they were guaranteed to be acceptable without spot or blemish by the temple authorities. You were guaranteed that the priest would accept them. They were exorbitantly priced way above market value. There was nothing you could do because you had to have an approved animal to sacrifice. And even if you brought your own animal, chances are upon inspection, they would find a flaw with it and it would be deemed unacceptable and you would still have to buy one from one of the booths. The court of the Gentiles was, in fact, a den of thieves. We would call it a racket today. These guys had a racket going. They had it all sewed up. It was as if defenseless sheep had walked into a den of wolves to be destroyed and devoured by them. Instead of praying for God's people, they were praying on them. God hates that kind of praying. Jesus wouldn't stand for it. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He drove out the merchants. He restored the court of the Gentiles to its true purpose. To the religious leaders, it was a temple tantrum. They concocted a question about authority in order to expose Jesus as an imposter. Forgive the obvious pun, but Jesus turned the tables on them. I asked you to forgive the obvious pun. Do you realize that many of our phrases and puns come from the Bible? This idea of turning the tables on people, this is from this Bible story. A lot of this has crept into our culture. Probably now they're going to ban this in schools. We want to take a look at the question of authority as we move through this story. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you have God's authority to announce his revelation. And number two, you have God's authority to denounce human reasonings. First of all, chapter 19, you have God's authority to announce his revelation. Jesus twice drove out merchants from the temple. Once at the beginning of his ministry, it's recorded in the Gospel of John. And then again here, a few days before the end of his earthly ministry, before he was crucified. It puts us on notice that we should be very careful we never prey upon God's people. That we don't see them as a source of revenue. That we don't manipulate them to extort money from them, even if it is for a good cause. 
You want to be extra careful not to get see see the body of Christ, the, the people of God, an audience that has come to hear the word of God as people that you are going to get money from. It's one thing to take an offering to give people an opportunity to uh, give unto the Lord. It's something else to, uh, you know, put up thermometers and have drives and all of these kinds of things and, and really coerce people. I've seen situations where people get up and say, I sold my extra car and you should sell your extra car. Uh, I've done this and you should do that. And everybody really needs to give, give, give to the project and, and all. And, and I understand that there are always good projects. There's a million good projects. Wonderful missionaries that need our support. And I can't say that every situation like that is, is wrong, but we just want to be careful. Don't we want to be careful? I mean, this, we don't want to make merchandise of God's people. It's not that you can't sell merchandise. I mean, you know, people say, well, then why do you have a bookstore? Why do you have a coffee shop? Well, we're not saying that if you show up with an unapproved shirt that you have to buy a Calvary Chapel shirt for $75. I'm sorry, brother, you've got a suit and tie on. That won't go. Uh, We don't allow suits and ties at Calvary Chapel. But if you visit our bookstore, we have on special now the Calvary Chapel of Hanford Polo for a price of $75. If you want to come to church, you're going to wear one. I mean, that that is the equivalent of that. We lose money on everything we do. We're losing money in the coffee shop hand over fist. We lose money in the bookstore. I mean, you know, we're nowhere near extorting money from people. I mean, we're, you know, people, they sometimes see things. Well, how come we're charging for that? Man, if you only knew how much money we were losing on that, you'd think we were crazy. And so that's not it. The idea is that they were forcing God's people, manipulating God's people, coercing God's people, putting pressure on God's people to give. And and, and we just want to be careful. Jesus' actions focus our attention on what we ought to be doing when we gather together as God's people. Three specific activities are mentioned. This isn't all that we do, but there are these three. Praying, teaching, and preaching. Let's take a look at praying, which is mentioned first, beginning in verse 45. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it. A den of thieves. The temple was the original IHOP, the International House of Prayer. It's especially meaningful to me because when I first came to Hanford, now I'm not saying I, you know, had been around, but I lived in Southern California where a lot of normal things happen. And, and, uh, I asked somebody one time if they if there was an IHOP anywhere around and they looked at me like I was crazy. What are you talking about? So, you know, IHOP, the International House of Pancakes. I don't know what you're talking about. And then here, how many years ago? Finally, I mean, I've been here 20 years. It was like three or four years ago. They opened up IHOP on Lacey Boulevard and it went belly up. (laughs) Now it's country waffle or whatever and stuff because we just can't support the IHOP mentality I guess (laughs) now don't get me wrong I love living in Hanford you know sometimes I joke about Hanford more about Armona but uh, (laughs) although I've too many people from Armona now so I've shifted to Layton and and Riverdale you know when I really want to get an immediate laugh but uh, I love it here I absolutely love this is our home we love it here 
Uh, I didn't graduate from high school here, so I'll never be considered a native, but it's okay. I'm happy with that, and so I love it. And so I'm just joking. I said, but there are some things about Hanford that are difficult for me. IHOP was one. The other was I'd, I'd talk and I'd be telling stories and I'd mention Del Taco. And people would come up afterward and say, hey, just so you don't make a fool of yourself, it's Taco Bell. And I'm thinking to myself, I've been eating at Del Taco since I was in high school. Every day, bun taco, medium Coke, curly cut fries. I mean, that was my staple lunch because there was a chain of Del Tacos in Southern California. Finally, they opened up a Del Taco here. It went belly up for a while. (laughs) Now they've had a grand reopening of Del Taco. It won't last. It just won't last. I have to tell you this. I have to get this off my chest. Okay. Went to Save Mart the other day. Love Save Mart. Love the people at Save Mart. This isn't a boycott of Save Mart at all. Not at all. Go to Save Mart. Going to be traveling up to Lodi, California. I wanted to get some water. And I thought, you know, just get some lifesavers. You know, I like to just pop lifesavers and have something going when I'm driving and stuff, you know, in case you get a tickle in your throat or something. like. Anyway, so I'm in there and I'm looking for the lifesavers. I'm at the counter. I'm at the candy section. I'm all over looking for lifesavers. Finally, Penny is there. Penny's a great clerk. I love Penny. She's, you, you like Penny? You know who Penny is? Penny's great. So I say, Penny. Penny, where do you guys hide your lifesavers? She goes, we don't carry lifesavers. I stood back. I got back away from her because I wasn't sure. I go, what do you mean? She goes, we used to carry lifesavers, and all of a sudden we didn't reorder them. We haven't had them for years. I don't know how you can be a store and not have lifesavers. To me, that's like going into a store and saying, where's your dairy section? Oh, it's in the back. Where's your butter? We don't carry butter. Milk, eggs, all that, no butter here. Why not? We don't know. It just, one day we quit carrying butter. (laughs) I send other people in to shop for me now because the things that I buy, then they get rid of them. (laughs) No kidding. I go in, if I buy something, I think, you know, they're up there in the office. They're looking at me because they, you know, and, and, and look at Gene, he's buying pierogies. Do you know what a pierogi is? Who knows what pierogies are? Raise your hand. Half a dozen of you. They, for a long time, didn't carry pierogies at uh, Save Mart. I don't think they still do. And I could list, I, we could spend all morning, I can tell you all the things that Save Mart used to carry that I started to buy. All right, now, the International House of Prayer. I don't want to limit the kind of praying that might take place in the court of the Gentiles. But in the context of the quote from Isaiah, it seems that one of the key prayers that God had in mind was the sinner's prayer of conversion. There was to be an evangelistic feel in this court of the Gentiles. The Den of Thieves quote comes from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. He used to stand outside the temple and rebuke the Jews as they entered it. Imagine that. You know, we have usher ministry, set up crew, and then we could have the rebuke guy. You know, he could wear a special shirt. And as you're coming in, he could be saying, the church, the church, you're a hypocrite. And, and that's exactly what this was like. In his day, they were disobeying God, trusting in their heritage and the fact that they had the temple in their midst. They thought, hey, we're God's chosen people. We've got his beloved temple. He's not going to let anything happen to us. Man, were they wrong. To discipline them, God allowed the Babylonian Empire to take them captive and to destroy their temple. 
Now, we will take notice of at least three things of application in Jesus' words. First, everything we think and say and do needs to be totally influenced by the Bible. We need to discover God's mind and heart on every matter and then proceed with God's wisdom. Even Jesus, seeing these abuses in the court of the Gentiles, based his actions on Scripture. He knew the heart and mind of God, and then he acted in a way that was according to that. And we always want to be careful that we can do the same. Now, second, Jesus strung together passages from two different sources, both of them dealing with a similar subject. We ought to become careful students of God's word, study the whole of it to gain a proper perspective. You know, the Bible is a progressive revelation from Genesis through the book of Revelation, where you're learning more and more and more and more about certain subjects. And that's why you can't just take a verse here or there or even several verses and form your whole idea and doctrine about them. You have to know the teaching of that subject throughout the entire word of God in order to know the mind and heart of God. And this is important because a lot of us, I I put myself in that to, you know, a lot of us, we really don't read much of the Old Testament, for example. A lot of Christians don't read the Old Testament. And, and it's sad because all of that, you know, there are so many beautiful things in the Old Testament that are then explained in the New Testament. There's a saying, the old is in the new explained, the new is in the old contained. And whenever you do an Old Testament study, people think you're a genius because you're, well, I've never saw that before. What a beautiful illustration of the love of God, of the grace of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the things that happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness are for our learning. They're examples for us to learn spiritual truths. And so we want to be able to be students of the whole word of God. And then third, Jesus used verses from the Bible prophetically. This is very interesting. Even though they were written hundreds of years earlier and they didn't really describe what was happening in the temple in his day, he understood those verses to have a contemporary application. He, he, he was ministered to by the word of God, that this is a house of prayer and not a den of thieves. And he made that contemporary application. We ought to seek such words right from the Bible to guide and direct us. In other words, we should believe that God can and does speak prophetically from his word. Now, this may not, may not seem profound, but it's really very interesting to me because on, on the spectrum of Christian understanding, there are people who are very, very conservative. And if you mention the word prophecy or prof, prophetically or anything like that, they think you're a heretic from hell. That, you know, you're adding to the word of God and, and all, the Bible is sufficient. And let's not talk about prophecy. Now, Jesus was able to use the Bible in a prophetic way. He was able to find verses to have be ministered to by verses that spoke to his situation. And I'm telling you what a great comfort it's been to me over the years in many situations when God brings a verse right out of his word that speaks immediately to your situation. On the other end of the spectrum, there are Pentecostal or charismatic believers who are having words of prophecy all the time during their worship services. Thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, God says this. And they don't even bother sometimes to test it according to the word of God. 
We had people in our church early on, we had a little Pentecostal cluster in our church. They were having prophecies like crazy, none of which ever came true. They didn't seem to think there was a problem with that. Thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen. That didn't happen. Who was wrong there? You or the Lord? Well, it must have been you. So why don't you quit prophesying, sister? In the Old Testament, they had a solution for that. It was called stoning. We largely ignore that. Largely. Anyway, there's a happy medium. There's a, there's a wonderful balance in that, yes, this is the Word of God. It's complete and full. God doesn't need to add anything to it. But He says it's alive and it's powerful. He can speak to you from it. He can give you verses that speak to your situation. And if there is a word of prophecy, if somebody says, hey, I feel the Lord is saying this right now, then we can pause and check it against what's revealed in Scripture and say, you know, that, that sounds like God and it doesn't uh, violate any doctrine or teaching of Scripture. We're going to believe that that's from the Lord. And so this is very important. Now, one other thing I'd like to suggest before leaving the thought that the temple had become a den of thieves. If praying and teaching and preaching were supposed to be going on and they weren't, and Jesus said it had become a den of thieves, then whenever they are not going on, you are robbing people. You don't have to be selling merchandise or uh, being, you know, money changing and all that. If you're withholding the proper activities, then you are also robbing people. And we need to be careful about that because every generation has its modern movement where we, you know, somebody decides that the way we do things, this preaching of the Word of God, this teaching verse by verse through the Bible, just isn't reaching people anymore. It's just not doing the trick. And, and we need to substitute something else to bring more people in. And it sounds good at first because somewhere in there you're going to give them the gospel, but they never actually get the gospel. It just becomes a, a thing where we want more and more people and we don't want to offend them. Once they're in, oh, now well, we didn't offend them at first, now we don't want to offend them later. And pretty soon they don't even know what they're doing. And so we just want to be careful that we aren't robbing people. I remember years ago, a friend of mine you know, came to me, and, and I can still see it in my mind. We're standing in my driveway on Leroy Street in San Bernardino, and he said to me, are you guys still teaching the Bible at your home Bible studies? Whoa. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, because they had moved into, uh, you know, something else that they were calling kinship groups. They were having kinship, whatever that was. I never found out, never wanted to find out, by the way, but it was different. Some of those kinship groups up in Northern California turned into wine tasting nights, believe it or not, because they, they became a lot. Of, there was a lot of freedom. You know, hey, we're not studying the Bible. Now we're having kinship. Let's have kinship over wine. Okay, so let's take a look at teaching in verse 47. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes and the leaders of the people, they sought to destroy him. They were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Jesus called the temple a house of prayer, but that didn't stop him from teaching. In fact, teaching was his primary activity on the days leading up to his crucifixion. Teaching God's word should always be the bread and butter or the lifesavers of any gathering. 
I cannot think of any better way of doing it than going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Do you just get that? Book by book through the Bible. Teaching God's word is taking a lot of hits in the church today. As I said, a lot of other activities are being overemphasized. We need to remain flexible and contemporary. We need to utilize technology. We can try some things. And, and let me encourage you because we and I love it. Now, I already told you I love living here. You know that, right? And I love you. But we're a very conservative area. Very conservative. I think some people didn't come out to see James and the professor because I don't know about this ventriloquism. I don't know if you can use ventriloquism for God. I have to see that, but I'm not going to come and see it. And, and I mean, we do have a tendency, conservative people have a tendency to be conservative and to be a little, you know, a lot of things I've tried to do or we've tried, not I, but we've tried to do. I remember when we first came to Hanford and we brought Daryl Mansfield and his band to Hanford. I met with a group of men. Not from our church, but from different churches. And they said, well, we don't know about this rock music. We'll come and see it, but we won't support it. And, and, and it was like, man, this is like this happened 25 years ago in Southern California. I mean, you know, are we that far behind? And, and, and so sometimes we do need to be a little bit, op- oh, just a tiny bit open to the fact that God sometimes does the same thing in different ways. And that we can use some things, that they can be a blessing, that they can be a benefit. We can go too far. Sometimes we don't go far enough. And so it's a a difficult bounce. I just ask you to hang with me here as we, you know, press on into the century that we live. You know, you realize, well, never mind. It's a lot of fun. I love you guys. So we don't want our church to fall behind, but we don't want it to become a den of thieves either. Where the word isn't being taught or ministered. Now I'm only going to mention preaching. You see it in the first verse of chapter 20. Where it says Jesus preached the gospel. This phrase preach the gospel is from a Greek word we translate evangelize. Let me suggest two things from its meaning. First in the context of these verses. It means that Jesus taught through preaching. In other words preaching was the style of teaching that he used. There's nothing wrong with other types and styles of teaching. But this lecture type preaching of the word of God is something that God has ordained. And, and, and it's, it's a good way of teaching God's word. For someone to get up, hopefully with the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifting of the Holy Spirit, and to publish and proclaim and announce the truth of God's word. There's nothing wrong with that. This is what Jesus did. He taught through preaching. Now, second, the word translated evangelize means the bringing of good news. When you preach through teaching, you should remember that what you have to communicate should be presented as good news to people. Now, that doesn't mean you don't ever talk about sin or judgment or hell or death. Obviously, you do talk about those things. It does mean that your teaching should be full of grace, mercy, love, and compassion. What it means is this. Instead of telling people what they ought to be doing for God, you should be telling people what God has done for them. Then in the context of, hey, you're a hell-doomed sinner. You're going to burn eternally. But God 
has taken your punishment. He's taken the terror away from death. He's gone before you so that you can live forever. Isn't that good news? And and so uh, that's the idea. And you and I, we have the ability to determine how we are going to present this marvelous message. And oftentimes, sadly, because we want to get a response or we want to motivate people, we end up talking to people about what losers they are. And you know, I could, I am such a loser. It, it, that's not hard for you to convince me I'm a loser. And I mean, you can see people just kind of shrivel up when you're talking. You know, if everyone prayed as much as you pray, how much prayer would go on? I thought we were going to hit our missions budget this week, but we didn't. But I saw some of you at Save Mart looking for lifesavers. <laughs> the money that could be spent on missions that you are paying on lifesavers is astonishing. And, and, and you know, it's, it's an exaggeration, but this is what happens sometimes because you want to motivate people and you end up telling them what they should be doing for God. Just tell people what God has done for them. Hey, I mean, you're already as bad as you can get. I mean, you're, you're going to hell. You're, you're going to, nothing you can do about it. You're going to die and go to hell. You're a hell-doomed sinner. You're in deep trouble already. You can't get any worse than that. There's degrees, I'm sure, but... It, Tell people what Jesus has done to save them from hell. And that's the emphasis that we want. Now, the point, too, that I want to emphasize before we go on to chapter 20 is that you have God's authority to pray and to teach and to preach. Every one of you, if you're a Christian, you have God's authority to pray. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God and you have direct access to his throne you can say to somebody, let's pray or let me pray for you. And you can know that you are taking them directly to God. You don't need any earthly credentials or certificates. So tomorrow when you go to work and somebody is sharing something with you and you say, hey, let's pray or let me pray for you. And they say, well, wait a minute, time out. Let me see your clergy card. Where's your mission certificate? Do you have a Ph.D.? Do you have a Master of Divinity? Have you even gone to a lame Bible college? Have you done anything? You go to a Christian college. Is is there anything that authorizes you to pray for me? And you say just one thing. That I've been born again. That I'm a child of God. That I'm in the family of God. That Jesus died to save me. and, And I'm equal with everyone else. I'm on a par with that. And as a child of God, I have direct access to his throne of grace and mercy. Do you want me to pray for you or not? You have that authority. You have God's authority to teach. Yes, there is a gift of teaching, and God has gifted men as teachers in His church, but all of us who are believers can use God's Word to teach. When we're sharing God's Word in certain situations, we're teaching other people what God believes and says. And you're a preacher. You're the only one with good news to share, no matter how bad the situation And you can share it with authority. If you know the Lord and something's happening, you can share with authority what it's all about. And and you just need to be sure that it's seasoned with grace and mercy and love and compassion. And so your authority is from heaven. You're an ambassador on the earth authorized to reveal God in and through your everyday life. The Holy Spirit who lives within you is like your diplomatic passport. And, and wherever you go, you can pray, you can teach, you can preach when God calls you to it. People don't always appreciate the announcement of God's revelation. 
They prefer their own reasonings. And that brings us to chapter 20. You have God's authority to denounce human reasonings. Jesus' activities in the temple were a rebuke to the religious authorities. It was on their watch that the temple was allowed to become a den of thieves. They determined to challenge the Lord's authority. It is sad beyond comprehension that they ignored his words and his works. No one ever spoke the way Jesus did. His miracles and signs and wonders testified that he was indeed sent from God as the savior of the world. All they cared about was their own power and influence. And so they challenged his earthly authority, refusing to acknowledge his heavenly authority. Now it happened on one of those days, verse one, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. They spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is he? Who gave you this authority? Jesus' answer was superb as usual. Verse 3. He answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing. Answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Now this phrase, the baptism of John, was a summary of John's entire ministry. He was most known for baptizing. After all, he was John the Baptist. Now, Jesus was asking them whether or not John's ministry was from God, whether or not John had authority from God for his entire ministry, including baptizing. While it's true that Jesus answered their question by asking a question, he was not at all being evasive. The answer to his question was his answer to their question. If John had God's authority for his ministry, then so did Jesus. John introduced Jesus. He declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that Jesus was the man sent by God. John told everyone to follow Jesus. So if John was authorized by God, then so was Jesus. The religious leaders were in a tight spot. Verse 5, they reasoned among themselves saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Now you have to see this really. Jesus asked this question. I mean, these guys, you know, they're there, they're authoritative. They've got their outfits on and they interrupt Jesus teaching and they're demanding to know his source of authority. And Jesus probably very calmly said, well, let me ask you a question first. And then these guys Move away and huddle up. They have a religious huddle. Hey guys, gather in. What do you think? If we say this, but if we say that, okay, we don't know what to say, so hut, hut, hut on three. And, and we don't know. It's hilarious. This was the ultimate no-win situation for them, and so they just acted dumb. Actually, it wasn't much of an act. Now, remember that these were the top guys. They were really, really smart. They would be the guys you'd see on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or National Geographic. You know, when I watch those programs and they talk about Jesus and the Bible, they sound just like this. They read the Bible account of an event and then they say through their broadcast, we don't know what happened. And, and it's, it's, a, it's ignorance par excellence. I was watching one the other day talking about Moses and the children of Israel walking through the wilderness. They were guided by a pillar of fire in the daytime, a cloud by night, 
Red Seas parting. These guys, National Geographic, Discovery Channel, History Channel, all these egghead guys, theologians, scientists, their theory, aliens, (laughs) spaceship, the cloud and the fire, alien craft, the parting of the Red Sea, I don't know, degraviton beams or something, whatever, you know. Dehydrated water, who knows? But, uh, and I thought, you know, what are you talking about? Do you understand the leap of faith it takes to believe something like that? Rather than to look at the fact that the Bible says a loving God who created man has done that, it's as if they huddled together in their ivory towers and they said, man, if we say that there's any validity to this, then the People are going to say, well, why don't you believe it then? And so we either say we don't know or we have to come up with our own theory. How about this alien thing? That'll get them. (laughs) And they believe it. And so their answer really is we don't know. But here's a very real possibility. It could have been aliens. A good example is the current debate over the teaching of intelligent design along evolution. Even though many top scientists have shown that evolution cannot possibly be true scientifically, and even though intelligent design is not creationism or even religious, they refuse to allow anything else but evolution to be taught. And in fact, much of what students are being taught isn't even true, and they know it's not true. It's the same type of ignorance we see in our story because a truthful answer commits you to seriously considering your own eternal destiny. If, if, if a guy comes out and he says, you know, evolution's not true. The next question is, well, then what do you believe? And you're challenged personally. And so even though I know it's not true, I'm going to act like it is. Or just say, I don't know. And leave it at that. Now, I can hear Jesus laughing out loud as he answered them and said, Hey, neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do these things. I mean, this is funny. You have to understand how funny this is. These guys, they come on the scene, stern and authoritative. They huddle up. The people are like, what's all that about? They should be able to just answer yes or no. We don't know. The whole crowd is laughing. Jesus is laughing. He's made fools of these guys. Didn't mean to. They did it to themselves. And so he's chuckling. I'm not going to tell you either. He didn't need to answer because their answer became his answer. Luke pointed out that they reasoned among themselves. There was Jesus revealing God. And there they were reasoning among themselves. The greatest human reasonings are like the brainwaves of a cockroach compared to the revelation of God. I think cockroaches have brains. I don't know if their brain waves have been measured, but if they are, that's the only thing I can think of. The simplest, youngest believer in Jesus can easily denounce the greatest of all human reasonings. The key is to not get brought down to their level. You know, when you're talking to these intelligent people, you think that you're, you know, they're at a level above you. They're actually trying to bring you down from the level of God's revelation to the level of human reasoning which is obviously deficient. Now, I mentioned evolution. I love the work of men like Henry Morris and Ken Ham who take head on the secular scientists and show the truth of God's word as opposed to the lies of evolution. But you don't have to argue or even engage in that kind of debate. You don't have to be 
up to speed on all of these things. You don't need to be an expert to denounce human reasonings. People may mock you. They may try to embarrass you. They will question your authority. All you need to know is that you were once blind, but now you see that you were once dead, but now you're alive. And they'll see that too, but they won't admit it because to admit it would engage them into this question. Then why don't you believe how sad that is really now, if you're a Christian, there's one phrase I'd like to return to briefly. It's in verse 48 where Luke wrote for all the people were very attentive to hear him. We should be very attentive to hear Jesus, just like we have been this morning. It means you hang upon every word of the speaker. That's the meaning of the word attentive, that you're hanging on every word. Every now and then we need to be reminded that Jesus is speaking, speaking to us when his word is read or taught. And we need to do our part to be attentive, to hang on every word. And then, too, we should remember that for some folks, our fellowship is the court of the Gentiles. They need to get saved. There should be an evangelistic feel to what we are doing. Not necessarily altar call every week or every message geared to evangelism, but as individual believers, we should be trying to get to know people that we don't know. And part of what we want to know about them is, what are you doing here? Are you a believer? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If not, let me share my testimony with you. Let me bring you the knowledge of eternal life. If you're not a believer, God has brought you here to hear your prayer, that of asking Jesus to forgive you your sins and to save you. Your own reasonings and the reasonings of others either have or will fail you. God's revelation will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, you're so gracious to give us these words of life, the truth And we thank you so much that we can gather together, hear these things, attend to them, hang on every word of yours, Lord. Turn it over in our minds and hearts. See if Jesus is being revealed in it. Feel the grace and the mercy and the love and the compassion of our Savior. Oh, Lord, we love you for those things. And I thank you, Lord, that you've provided a place for unbelievers to come in. And rather than being robbed, Lord, they are prayed for and with that the word of God is given to them. It's read to them, if nothing else, so that your spirit can take it and begin to apply it in their hearts and lives. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any that are not believers today, that they would, that they would come to you, Lord, that they would pray the prayer of asking you to save them. Eternal life, a prayer away for them, Lord. Thank you. We thank you that you've blessed our time. Go on blessing it now as we seek to serve and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please stand together. As the service ends, some of the guys will be up front to pray for you. If you're not a believer and you want to know how to know Jesus Christ, how that he can forgive your sins and give you eternal life, they'll be happy to share that with you. And so come on forward and just say, man, I I need to get saved or however you want to put it. Maybe you're a believer and you're discouraged. You know, discouragement is is a key tool of the enemy. It opens us up to so many other temptations and failings. If you're discouraged and you just want to be prayed for and and, and prayed over, then come on forward. Uh, maybe you have a need in your life financially or physically. Guys will be here to deal with that as well. So avail yourself.
of this time of prayer service. It's over in a sense, but it's not over if you still need ministry. And even though you're going to leave the sanctuary, it's really not over in the courtyard or in the cafe because we want to minister one to another. We want to encourage one another. Say those things that are seasoned with grace, that bring uh, grace to the hearers, that bring eternal life to a person. Don't just ask somebody how they are. Tell them how you're doing. Tell them what the Lord's doing in your life. Minister to them and let them minister to you. May God bless and keep you until we're together again. In Jesus' name, amen. so discouraging to his children sometimes and we're all going to go out to our jobs and our schools and and into our lives and there's going to be enemies of the Lord there and there's going to be things that discourage us and there's going to be things that are trials to us but today and right now we can lift the name of Jesus Christ on high with our voices and with our hearts and we can put him higher than anything on this earth just a few more seconds and we can praise him and then we have to meet again in a week or on Wednesday but right now belongs to us and it belongs to the Lord. Let's sing, Lord, I want more of you. Lord, I want more of you. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, rain down on me. Lord, I need, Lord, I need more of you. Living breath of life, come fill me. We are hungry. We are hungry. We are hungry, we are hungry for more of you. We are thirsty, Lord Jesus. We are thirsty for more. We lift and we lift our holy hands up. We want to touch you. We lift our voices high.
We lift our holy hands up. And we lift our holy hands up, Lord. We want to touch you. We lift our praises. And we lift our praises higher and higher.